Welcome to Bonus Features. Some might call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's the portion of Secret Handshake where we speak with writers, directors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love. I'm Jacob Knight, and joining me is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing? Doing well. Excited to get into this. So, I guess we should explain, since we've been rolling the podcast out and the site out in general how we came up with this idea because this is almost I don't hesitate to say a podcast until itself right yeah I I think so that you know we were watching one of our early films and it wasn't part of the original package um and yeah and then I think we were watching the second or third film in our series and I believe you said like what if we just try to talk to these people I was pretty high when I said whatever I said. And I I think I'd been, you know, we'd all been drinking. I'd been drinking for sure. And that why not just try to speak to, and not just the classic thing of like, let's get the director every time, you know, right? that there are ways to, like you were saying with film critics and with the the writer or people tangentially related to the film we're we're discussing that week. Or who even just like love the movie or a movie adjacent to it, like, or who made a piece of art that reminds us of what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. That's, I think, one of the um, things I love about film in general is just the the way when you're talking about a film, you can just go off on these tangents for hours. Yeah. You know, I think it's that kind of mentality, right? That well, it's here. like the idea that when you're writing or talking about movies, you're writing and talking about everything. Like, you can literally tie it back to all of life. Which is pretentious as fuck to say, but like... But true. It's true, and that's kind of what this portion of Secret Handshake is based off of, is the fact that it's like, oh man, this person would probably love this movie. Let's see if we can talk to them about it. Yeah, or just, you know, what... um, Watching the film for that week, just saying, what is a theme that keeps coming up, and, and how do we think outside the box sometimes, sometimes that's by necessity where it's like, Oh, I'd love to talk to Paul Schrader, you know, yeah. about rolling thunder. Good luck. Um, and, and, but at the same time, it can be so much more interesting than that kind of one-to-one of let's talk to the filmmaker themselves. Um, sure. And for instance, for this week for rolling thunder, we don't talk to any of the filmmakers. We talk to Joe Lansdale. Yes. Who I think we should explain. Okay, so we had an interview actually all lined up for week one. <laughs> and due to unfortunate circumstances, she fell through. Yeah. Um, and I had another one I wanted to do. And you had another one, and that one just didn't respond. So that was a bummer. So I kind of threw a Hail Mary out there and went to Joe Lansdale, the king of Texan mojo storytelling, because I was like, well... We love Cold in July. It came we, up many times we're watching Rolling Thunder. Yeah, and we even mentioned it in the Rolling Thunder episode. So it was like, could we talk to Joe Lansdale? He's, I mean, let's face it, possibly the greatest Texan genre author of all time. He and Robert E. Howard. Yeah, oh, good poll. 
um, on that one. Yeah, uh, but no, I, I I think there's a lot of crossover between the two writers too, besides Texas. But um, I, just from a personal note, I was a Joe Lansdale fan when I was living in Georgia. Yeah, I was more excited for this interview for you than I was for <laughs> me because like, no, 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 like you're laughing, but like I'm for lack of a better term, a Joe Lansdale neophyte. Like I've read some short stories. I've read like the drive in and seen, you know, cold in July. And then I actually watched happen Leonard, the TV series that he helped uh, produce with Jim Mickle and Nick uh, Demichi for Sundance. And I was blown away by it. It's so fucking awesome. And then I I read a bunch of the books and like short stories kind of in the week leading up to the interview. And then I was like, holy shit, I can't wait to talk to this guy. He seems so unique, but you are the bigger fan. So can you talk just a little bit about your relationship to Lansdale's work? Yeah, I think it actually began with Cold in July. um, And it was 2014. And... um. I I'd already seen Bubba Hotep at that point, but it was more like I considered that a Don Coscarelli film. Like I was coming sure. in that direction. I'd seen that too, and I really like it myself. And, it, and it's awesome, but I had never considered also like, um, incident on and off a mountain road, which uh, Coscarelli made for Masters of Horror, which I'd also seen, but because of Coscarelli. You know, it was again that was like the reason I was watching those, and and I still am. We both are huge Coscarelli fans. Um, and I saw Cold in July. It was the weekend before my nephew was born. Uh, my sister-in-law was going to be induced, and my brother was like, I was like, hey, we should do a, a baby bachelor party. You come over to Atlanta, and we'll just like go camping and stuff. And in one night, we, he had never seen he had never seen uh, Sleepaway Camp, and we saw it on the big screen, and then right after, we went and saw Cold in July. You fucked that kid up. Oh man, and my my brother was just like, "Wow, that was like a great night of movies." And that's a great night of movies. Oh yeah. And we in Cold July didn't have a huge wide release, but it played at an art theater in Atlanta, and we both walked out. I was like, "Well, that's one of the best movies we've seen in a long time." Yeah. And immediately after that, I said, "I just did my normal like IMDb, and then just you know Wikipedia and Googling, and I said, oh, this Joe Lansdale guy like writes a lot of stuff that I love. Like I should just read.'" everything he's done a lot of it so the first thing i did was drive in like you talked about which yeah. is fucking great like it's, and is a big part of our conversation with him and he and he really gets into it and um and then from that i just watched more interviews with him and i i read a number of the happen leonard series before the show came out um and like savage season and mucho mojo like the first couple and um, and then a lot of his short stories like his short story collection um writers of the purple rage which is just like fucking really great title for a short story yeah. collection. Um, and, you know, he's spoken about, we get into this in the interview of just, you know, really not using an outline when he writes and he has this fresh, alive kind of style and it's can get really fucking batshit crazy. And, you know, beyond genre, just what's the story he wants to tell. Um, and anything can happen when he writes. And uh, I had already fallen in love with Atlanta. I'm sorry, with, with Austin and Texas, I'd visited here for South by, and it was that, that wildness of the Texas chainsaw feel, you know, the feel of anything can happen and the, the craziness of he has that seventies Texas vibe and eighties Texas vibe to everything he writes. Um, it's just colored by that. Yeah. And he's sort of like, um, for lack of a better term, a bar stool historian mm-hmm. in a weird way, yeah. like listening to him, like you could imagine meeting him at a bar 
at like nine o'clock and staying there and like talking to him until closing time over beers because he just has so many stories to tell. He has so much history. He's seen so much stuff in his life and you go, oh, okay. And now is a good time to also kind of disclose when we put season one together, we kind of did patchwork. Like I would do season or like week four, one week, and then I would do week 10. And then we were coming down to the wire with this interview. So we kind of recorded this one at the end. We recorded it on December 10th, 2020. Like one of the last ones that I did. And we're going to talk about a few things in the episode that like are kind of down the line and other of our main episodes, let's say, like we talk about Vietnam a whole bunch, which is without, um, I guess, realizing it when we made our picks for season one, like we kind of, a theme emerged Yeah, to where we were talking a lot about the Vietnam War, how that had a psychic, like kind of traumatic effect on America and the art afterwards. And we talked to Joe Lansdale a lot about Vietnam, but like there's no more rewarding thing than talking to a person about history who lived through that history. And he has a lot to say about how it influenced his work. And not just lived through it, but like it was directly affected his life And, and not in a way that, I mean, both our parents lived through that era. Yeah. But someone who really has a lot to say (laughs) and it's great a very unique perspective yeah so but enough from us yeah nobody's here to listen to us talk they're here to listen to joe lansdale talk and so let's just get into it here is 80 plus minutes of uncut uncensored unrivaled joe r lansdale hello hello Sorry, I had some technical difficulties. <laughs> well, the first time I used Zoom, my computer like literally exploded in flames. I had no idea what I was doing. So <laughs> I had a, I had like a, a surge or something, and uh, I couldn't. I, the, the internet went. I went, oh hell! But it just lasted a moment, and then I was back. I think like uh, the weather must have acted funny or something. How are you guys doing? Awesome, doing awesome. I'm I'm Martin. Martin Carlson. I'm Martin. I'm Jacob. How are you, Joe? Hi, Jacob. I'm good, man. I'm ready to rumble. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> First off, thanks for uh, taking the time out. Yeah. Uh, to you know, join us and be on the episode. Uh, it's a well, huge thank honor. you for asking. I really yeah. appreciate that. But uh, to kind of dive right in, um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, like, you know, in a lot of interviews. And I've heard you talk a whole bunch about learning to read through comics, essentially. Yes. Um, Yes. But I wondered if there was a specific instance of storytelling itself where the light went off in your brain where you wanted to be a storyteller. Because I know you also say that you always wanted to be. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I think that we think back and we remember one major moment or two, but it's probably not that easy. It's probably a, 
an accumulation of, of moments and ideas and things. But, you know, I, I can't remember not. I remember being read Uncle Remus, which were the old, uh, you know, Joel Chandler uh, stories. And, uh, you know, they're, they're a little less popular now than they used to be. But, uh, you know, they were great stories about Br'er Rabbit and stuff like that. And those were early stories. And they were written in such a way it was like somebody was telling you the story. And I think that had a lot to do with it, to be honest. And, and also, I grew up with a family. Let me see if I can enlarge things here. I grew up with a family that was uh, storytellers. You know, well, most of them were. My father was definitely uh, a storyteller. And, uh, you know, some of the other family were, too. And I, I believe that that influenced it. And I, I believe, too, um, just stories excited me so much that I felt driven to give, you know, that I have an opportunity, rather, to give my own stories, uh, to make up those wonderful lives that were so <laughs> exciting, you know. So I don't, I don't know that it's a single thing, but the Uncle Remus thing has always been, I think, one of the more prominent things for me because it was read to me when I was a child. You know, they had, there was a big popular thing at that time and they had big volumes of it. And I remember that. And also, and what's definitely a, a, a very racist type movie now was Song of the South at that time. And I was a child and they had little, they made these little golden books that you could read that were related to the film. And I remember having one of those either after, sometime maybe sometime after the film had come out and uh, I learned to read from that and from comics so those were the things that were available to me uh, that I learned to read from I think I learned the the sweep of storytelling and the way to blend genres from comics and I think that too when I was a kid and if I'm talking too long let me know I but when I was a kid um, TV was just really beginning to be a thing uh, I mean that's how old I am and in um, TV had been around since, you know, since the 20s, but nobody really had one until the 40s after World War II, really. And so it was just a few years after World War II, and I was a child, and the TV came. I remember, I, I think I was four years old when we got our first television. And what they did to fill it up, they put these old Hopalong Cassidy uh, TV uh, movies, and, and they did Tarzan and all these things, and many of these were from the pulps and from old dime novels, and, and uh, so, you know, the pulps and comics and all those were pure storytelling, and they were made for a child, and, and frankly, at four years old, I was pretty damn precocious, so uh, I, I, I sort of absorbed all of that stuff, but I've always said, and I've always given credit to comics, um, Joel Chandler Harris with uh, the... Um, um, you know, Br'er Rabbit stories and so on, and, and the old television, uh, the early television uh, movies that were brought in from, you know, they were looking for anything to fill the space because it used to go off in the afternoon and then it would go off at 9 at 10.30 and then they started adding stuff in the afternoon and then somebody came up, Steve Allen came up with The Tonight Show and so they added that in and then they thought, well, why don't we have a movie? Because used to it all cut off, you know, you, you had uh, nothing, just um, this little, you know, it was a picture, it was what they called an Indian head. Yeah, the Native, was, American, uh, a Native yeah. American. Yeah, you know, or, or sometimes it was uh, uh, the flag waving and they were playing the Star Spangled Banner, you know, it was that sort of thing and it was over. And then they just went blank. 
and it started back uh, sometime in the morning, and then uh, it would, you know, gradually, over time, filled up all those spaces, and then they started having what they called the late movie. Then they had the late, late show, and so gradually they began to add those things, and sometimes when the late, late show, uh, they would show monster films, and they would show the old universal films, so I would stay up when I was supposed to be going to school the next day, I would sneak in and watch them. And I think my mother and father were both pretty lenient about it. I think they both realized that there was something going on with me that was different than what was going on with, uh, you know, maybe some other kids. What was your favorite universal monster? Just yeah, that's not, I was going to ask the same thing. Wolfman. <laughs> Wolfman. Wolfman. The Wolfman. That Still is. Sense. Martin yeah, and I, yeah, I jumped Wolfman, on the, uh, it's really the Jekyll Hyde story, you know, and, or, or let's just say the Jekyll Hyde's the Wolfman story. It's the, uh, uh, it's the shapeshifter idea that one moment you're normal and the next moment you're not so damn normal. And, um, you know, it was just, it was highly appealing to me. I loved all of the universal monsters. A few years back, I watched Dracula for the first time in quite a few years and I found it just boring and slow and I was surprised at how much culture has changed and how we perceive things. Because that was one of the creepiest things I'd ever seen when I was a child, you know. But uh, Lon Chaney Jr. still works for me because the difference with him is that there's that personal feeling of here's a good guy that's been screwed over by this curse, you know. And uh, and y'all, you know, he feels somewhat sympathy for, of course, for the Frankenstein monster. Uh, Dracula, I was, I was always one of those guys that identified with the people that were going to kill Dracula. <laughs> I was never one of those that wanted to be the vampire, but, and the only one I ever thought, wow, if I could ever act, I would play the wolf man. And that was because of Lon Chaney Jr. All right. Yeah. I, uh, real quick about comic books too. I, um, I was thinking about, um, Batman and son, the animated film, uh, that you yeah. wrote. And I, I remember just, uh, already being a fan of your work and I am also a huge Batman fan and was just, I rented the episode oh without, without knowing. So how cool was it to kind of come to Batman uh, as, as a comic reader from when you're younger? Oh, oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> damn cool. It was That's damn cool. You know, um, Batman's really important to me. My, my son once wanted, wrote an article about me and he said, my dad's Batman. And the reason for that is that when I was young, uh, because of reading Batman comics, I became interested in so many different things because Batman had this incredible array of interest and studies because, you know, he did chem chemistry and astronomy and he could box and he could wrestle. He knew some judo, jujitsu, you know, uh, karate and things like that. And I thought, that's the guy I want to be. I want to be that guy that knows every damn thing. And uh, turned out I couldn't do that. But <laughs> but I, I, I could do martial arts and I became... Uh, I'm, I'm uh, in the United States Martial Arts Hall of Fame and the International Martial Arts Hall of Fame. Uh, so I did embrace that. I still teach, although I haven't been able to because of the virus, you know. I, this isn't just my native good looks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but but I, uh, I did that, and I, I did try to learn chemistry and things like that, but I, I didn't have the, uh, the, the real knack for doing it. But as a child, I knew a lot about all kinds of things, you know, astronomy and things of that nature, because I read those little golden books, you know. <laughs> so for my age, I was very, you know, knowledgeable, but it gave me this thirst for knowledge. And that stayed with me, even if I couldn't master all of these things that 
that Bruce Wayne and Batman, you know, did, I, I, it, it really did change me in a fundamental way. And I think it made me somewhat of the person I am today. And, and in the same way, I've always had this thing for the underdog, having been one myself. And we lived in this little town about that time. I was born in a slightly bigger town. We lived in a town about 150 people. I think it's booming at 450 now. But I lived there, and we wanted to be Batman. I mean, I wanted to be Batman, and my, my nephew, who was really about my age, because my brother was 17 when I was born. And uh, he, he and I would be Batman and Robin. My mom made, made us suits, made us outfits. I had the Batman. I looked a little bit like a tired German shepherd because my little <laughs> ears. And, uh, and so I remember waking up and finding out that the Mount Enterprise Bank had been robbed. And I said, well, damn, I didn't even get to get my suit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, where was, uh, where was the bat signal? I realized that that wasn't going to be my career arc. And uh, I've tried to write and draw comics, and I became fascinated with trying to do that. And uh, I was like, at four years old, I was like an amazing artist that was still the same at nine years old and still the same at 15. <laughs> so my, I peaked quick. And uh, so I never got any better. But the storytelling, I did get better at that and I was drawn to it. I was excited by it. And as time went on, I became more and more excited by it. And when I began to read Edgar Rice Burroughs, that really gave me this feeling of color and sweep of, of, uh, of, of planetary, you know, adventures. And um, it, it seemed real to me when I was that, I think, I guess 11 or so when I began to read those. And, and I was reading Jack London and Rudyard Kipling and Mark Twain you know, it, all that stuff. So those are where all my storytelling comes from. It's not a single, it's not a single source, you know, films and TV, of course, you know, added to it. It's a healthy mix of lots of yeah, stuff. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but even when I was a kid, some radio shows still existed. There were soap operas, the suspense was still around. The shadow was still around. And I faintly remember hearing the shadow, I think. And I faintly remember hearing some other radio shows and a lot of them moved to TV. They moved straight from radio to, to television, you know? And uh, later on when I became interested in collecting radio shows and stuff, I would go, wait a minute, I know the ending to this one. And you know, I would, and it was, it was, I think suspense, please. If I remember right. I, uh, you were talking about, uh, about your parents and, and your father being a storyteller and the kind of the storytellers. I'm interested right. about, um, them growing up during the depression. Um, one of my favorite works by you is the Barons, and I'm wondering how their bottoms, experience. The sorry, I apologize. The Bottoms, yeah, That's and right. uh, uh, like Barons too. <laughs> <by my name. laughs> yeah, uh, I've, I've read that too. But uh, yeah, the Bottoms. But going from their experience and telling, you know, telling stories uh, to you, um, how does that blend into to that work and to other works that you've done? You think? Well, you know, my grandmother told me stories too. My grandmother, when she died, she was nearly a hundred and she was born in the 1880s and she saw Buffalo Bill's Wild West show when she was a kid and she could remember every moment of it. And she told me all about it. And she, and, uh, you know, she had come to Texas in a covered wagon and, uh, all of that stuff, which is amazing. I mean, there's a woman born in essentially the old West and died after people had gone to the moon. You know, I mean, think about that, 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 I mean, I'm starting to have that culture shock too, because you know, the time I was born, what we've got now, just what I'm doing right now with you guys, this is like science fiction. This is the stuff I used to see <laughs> on the on science fiction, you know, 
And I would go, wow, I want, that would be cool. So that was one thing. And she told me stories. She told me a lot of Irish, Scotch Irish ghost stories. And uh, so a lot of that had, had something to do with it. But so they had gone through really hard times. And my father was born in 1909, which is, and, and, and think about that. Mark Twain was still alive. He died the next year in 1910. Wow. Masterson was still alive. I think he died in probably maybe 1921 or something. Um, Annie Oakley, you know, she died well past that. Um, Wyatt Earp, I think he died in 1921 as well. I'm a little, might be an off a year or so there. Um, but think about that. That's the world they were in, you know, and, and my dad had relatives who had fought in the Civil War. And my mother had relatives who had fought in the Civil War. Now, they were not people I knew at that time, but they were people they, that they had known that were still alive after the Civil War when they were children. You know, the, uh, my dad was born before World War One. You know, think about that. And maybe 50, less than 50 years or around 50 years or so after the Civil War. So this was a, and he, he grew up, they rode horses. They had wagons. You know, he, he told me the first time he ever saw an airplane and uh, how excited it was. And it was just probably a biplane, you know, or I, I mean, I don't remember I was young and, and I probably should have paid more attention, but yeah, I remember when I saw first saw an airplane, you know? And so they had those kind of experiences. And as they reached their adulthood, they were right at the great depression. And my father could not read or write. And my mother was the reader, uh, but my dad couldn't read or write, but he was an incredibly physically strong man. And uh, he could do jobs when no one else could. So he would usually got work, you know, he was able to work during the great depression, but it wasn't uh, what you would call white collar jobs by any means, uh, which I inherited doing very similar jobs. Because my mother told me, if you don't get a college education, you're going to end up digging a ditch. My first real job was digging a ditch, you know? <laughs> and so I, I dug ditches. I worked on garbage trucks. I, I worked for the street department. I, I fought for money. Uh, I did all these sort of things that, you know, to survive. And I worked in the rose fields. I was a janitor for six or seven years, seven, I think. And, uh, you know, I, I worked aluminum chair factory. Uh, I worked at a mobile home uh, place. I was so bad, they, they brought me and said, you're one of our hardest workers and we feel bad about firing you, but you keep falling through the roof. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, um, you know, so I did all kinds of things. And, uh, um, you know, I came from that same tradition that he had, except I had a better chance because as tough as it was for me, he had gone, the Great Depression was, you know, terrible. My my mother said their family only had like a bag of onions, a big bag of onions to eat for, I don't know how long they lasted, but they had them every day. They fried them. They ate them raw. They baked them. They, whatever could be done, they ate those damn onions. And, and you know, my father, he, he wouldn't eat a mashed potato till the day he died because he had to eat so many mashed potatoes. And he said they used to have a joke during the Great Depression. If you looked out the window and there was only one man chasing a rabbit, you knew things were getting better. And uh, so they had had those kind of things. So he told me, and my mother told me all of those stories. And I grew up almost like I was in the Great Depression because we saved every damn thing. We saved string, we saved rubber bands, everything. My, I remember being poor enough that the bottom of my shoe, I would wear a hole in it 
And so what we would do is we'd get a piece of cardboard, like it went inside of a shirt back then. You'd buy a shirt, had a piece of cardboard in it, and it would unfold out of the, around the cardboard. And I'd take that and we would color it with a pen, you know, or, or shoe polish. And then you would cut it out to fit the sole so that the bottom of you had, even though there was a hole, you had this cardboard to temporarily extend the life of your shoe until you could afford to have them resold, you know, or, or get afford to buy new shoes. And, and we had people that, you know, cobblers, they fix shoes. You take them down to the person and, you know, for 50 cents or a dollar, he puts you a, a half sole on it. And uh, if you was, if you were big time, you'd get a full sole. You could get a full sole for maybe a, a dollar or two or something. That's and how so, you do, man. You know, I, I grew up, yeah, yeah. I grew up with that same kind of thing going on, but in a, in a better time in a way, because the fifties were considered one of our great times financially, the way people were doing that. That's the beginnings of the American dream, you know, is that they be able to afford a house, to be able to feed your family, to have a job and to have some kind of retirement in that job when you, some kind of pension in that job when you retired. That was the American dream. It had nothing to do with being rich. That was what the American dream essentially and originally was because people before that weren't, didn't really have that. You know, you, you could be, you know, you could be in the woods one day and, and then my father hobo, he used to box and wrestle for money as well. This was before I was born and he did that. He would catch a train in Lindale, Texas and go through Tyler and different places to different fairs and box and wrestle for money. And he won a lot of them because he was a tough dude, you know? And so they were doing whatever they could. And he worked in a cannery. And then eventually my mother said, what do you really want to do with your life? And he said, I want to be a mechanic. And my mother bought him an old, I don't know if it was a Model A or Model T. I get those mixed up, but it was one of those cars and said, why don't you take that apart now until you can put it back together blindfolded? And he did. And he became a mechanic. And that was what he retired doing was a mechanic. And, and after he worked for some people for a while, but eventually opened his own garage and all that. But every bit of that comes out of the Great Depression. So you can imagine how I was wrapped in the Great Depression. I was wrapped in that struggle. I was wrapped in that pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, as much as that is true. You know, in some extent, you always like, you, you know, we had a family that was very supportive one of one another you know, but all of those things contributed to me riding the bottoms. It contributed to me telling the stories I've told. And, um, and I know I'm probably filling up a lot of stuff here, but it, it's, it's, it's not an easy answer, but it's a little bit more complex than that. So I'm trying not to leave you with the u usual, you know, uh, goat dung that people have about, you know, I, I had this and from then on, I, you know, doing that way. It was a, a multitude of experiences of other people as well as of myself. But that's sort of like your writing never left um, the working and the, the poor class, let's say behind, because like, you know, Hap and Leonard are in the rose fields yeah. and they're doing I was, jobs. I was half. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. Like they're doing jobs that you were doing and stuff at the yeah. same time. And that's kind of what makes your work uniquely Joe Lansdale is that it's always concerned yeah, with individuals. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've written some things that I consider unrelated to my own life. I mean, in a way, sure. Batman, but in another way, you know, as I was telling you my connection to Batman, but there's certainly things I've done that aren't related, but the bulk of my work, the best of my work 
comes from a source of, of my own life, my own experience, and the lives and experiences of people close to me, kin to me or close to me. So I borrowed from all of those, those different things, you know, and, and, and like Hap, I was a civil rights guy in the South, uh, not a popular position. I'm, a, I'm an atheist, not a popular position. Um, I was an anti-Vietnam War resistor, not a popular position. And in fact, I was drafted and refused to go. And they told me to get ready to go to prison like Hap. So I went home and they, they think they gave me a week or two. I don't remember. And they were going to, they, I was catch bus and Tyler again to go back to Dallas for them to, I guess, send me to prison or whatever they were going to do. And so I went home and I said, well, get my stuff together, which is pretty much pocket change and my wallet. I'm, I'm out, you know, <laughs> that was it. And so I went back and they said, have you changed your mind? And I said, no, sir, I'm not changing my mind. I'm, and I, my number was 28. I'd been drafted. I'd been asked to step forward for induction and I had re, refused all of that. They brought me back thinking maybe I would do it. I told them, no, I'm not. I said, I'm not, and I'm not a conscientious objector. In, in, the, in the TV show, they make half a conscientious objector, which I object, object to because he, he's not. What he is, he was an anti-Vietnam War rejector. You know, he didn't, he didn't like that war. And uh, I, they asked me, would you have fought in World War II? And I said, yeah. I said, I might have been the first in line, you know. But I said, I'm not doing this because it's not about coward. You can do what the hell you want. And I'm not running. I'm not trying to go to Canada. I'm not, uh, take me on, lock, you know, lock me up, put me in prison. I know how long it is. It's 18 months. I, I think they called it two years, but it's actually 18 months. And uh, he, they, they had me take, you know, a test. And they said, man, you're officer material. I said, no, you're not going to pull that one on me. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm standing by my conviction. Also, I was young and I was idealistic, you know, too. And they said, well, uh, go in and see our psychiatrist. So I went in and I was in there five or 10 minutes and they gave me a one Y and sent me home. And I was stunned all the way home. And one Y means unfit for military service. They didn't think I would do something I didn't believe I should do, you know? So that was it. But in that way, half an hour similar, except he ended up going to prison. And I knew some people that had gone to prison. So, uh, you know, I borrowed this and that for that character. And Leonard was made up of a lot of different people that I worked with in the Rose Fields and that I knew and uh, civil rights things, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, so it comes out of my own life, as you were saying. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm sorry, Jacob, you want to say something? All right, you go. No, I was going to say, it's interesting that um, in our, um, in his podcast, we've watched two films, uh, Cutter's Way and uh, Rolling Thunder. And Vietnam yeah. has become this theme in a lot of, and, and people who went and people who didn't go. And especially, I see, I think with Happen Leonard, for me, um, reading uh, Mucho Mojo about 10 years ago when I first read it was, that was like the main source of contention was this kind of underlying, for me, tension of one person went and one person stayed and how their lives kind of diverged, but they also both my ended brother up in Rosefield. Yeah, my mm. brother was 17 years older than me and he retired a captain in the military. So we had a totally different viewpoint about Vietnam, you know. So that some of that is in Leonard, you know, and I had another friend and cousins and some of them is in there, they're in Leonard and some of them went because they, you know, as, as I always felt too, I knew people that went not because they believed in it, but because they were scared to say no. They were scared to go to prison. And guess what? I was scared too, you know, and, uh, but I've never regretted it. I've always been proud of it. And, uh, 
you know, I had a, I had a civil rights case uh, called Lansdale et al. versus TJC, which is Tyler Junior College, because I wouldn't cut my hair, and uh, they wouldn't let me in. So I, um, with a couple of other guys, we put a, we had a, a lawsuit, you know, an injunction actually at first, and uh, that thing went on for years. They had to let us back in, and I only I only went like a, a year or so there, and then went to University of Texas for a while, then. I, dro- I never finished college. I dropped out. I couldn't afford it. And I wanted to write so bad that I worked other jobs so I you know, could be committed to that. But um, at TJC, we won that lawsuit. And that lawsuit has been used in civil rights cases until this very day. But all of a sudden, people had to let people in the universities, had to let people in the high schools, and especially, especially universities because people paid for it. And so all over, not just Texas, but primarily at that point in time, you know, you, you had the right to wear your hair any way you wanted. And we went to court and they tried to say, you know, that we weren't very smart. And we were like, you know, the people that wore their hair and I was on the Dean's list. So, you know, that, that didn't work. And my friend, uh, Paul Harders, who, who was one of the other guys was on the Dean list. The other was Bobby Hutchinson. I don't remember if he was or not, but it was pretty clear that we weren't idiots. And, uh, and they wanted, well, why you wear your hair like that? And I said, girls like it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And I was married to my first wife at that time, and she really liked my hair, and I really liked her, you know, because we were both young, and and uh, and and I and I think that was true. It was it was it was a fashion statement at first, but it became a social flag. It became your freak flag, you know. This is what I'm doing. I'm not I'm not accepting this. So I'm always having to fight people, literally, because I refuse to look like they wanted me to look. I refuse to go to Vietnam when I didn't believe in it. I refused to, you know, believe in God when I didn't. I refused to be a conservative and a Republican where I was, you know, when I lived in a place. I'm nothing against people being conservative or Republican. I'm against people trying to make me be one, you know, <laughs> if I'm not one. And, uh, I, you know, and, and we don't really have Republicans anymore. We have idiots. But there was a time when there, it, it was more distinguishable. You know, you, could, you had people you could, oh, I just disagree with them. Yeah, it's different. Now, I'm glad that you brought up uh, your college years because I was reading another interview that was done with you that where you talked about studying anthropology, archaeology, mm-hmm. and then the humanities, yeah. ultimately. And I just wondered if you ever thought that you were bringing those interests to your fiction, because there's times where yeah. you almost feel like a fictional anthropologist or archaeologist at times. I feel like I am one, you know, and uh, what happened is I read tons of archaeology books and anthropology books and, and sociology books and psychology books, and I was in a very, very social um, arena at that time because all this was going on, and I had always had the, the idea that I wasn't going to the university for my job. I was going to make my life wiser and better. Sure. See, I believe that's what college is for. I think it's been distorted. It's always the job is certainly part of it. I mean, you know, you earn a degree and you, you get a job. But I always thought it wasn't about being rich. I never thought I was going to be a rich anthropologist, you know. I but I, I liked anthropology because it tied in somehow with that insightful thinking. And when I started to write, which I, you know, I started wanting to write when I was a child. So I never lost that. I was looking for something to do until I could afford to write full time. Uh, and uh, I thought I would teach. I thought I would teach anthropology, maybe do some field work. 
you know, maybe dis discover uh, the lost version of man somewhere out there in, in the weeds, you know, whatever it was. But I always was working to be a writer. I never, ever wanted to be anything but a writer and a martial artist. Okay. And that's, that's what I was doing, you know? And um, so, yeah, you know, the anthropology. And if you, if you look at that era, I mean, a lot of the writers that influenced me, even if I'm writing crime fiction, were people uh, that were writing about social issues and were dealing with social issues. E even, uh, you know, Vonnegut dealt with those things. And, and uh, th there were tons of others that did. And there were lots of short story writers in science fiction, the late 60s, early 70s, that were part of the new wave, like Philip Jose Farmer, and uh, Harlan Ellison and people like that, they were all dealing with those same things. So that sort of transformed me from just wanting to be an adventure writer to in, being somebody who could do that if I wanted to, but could also write stories with other elements. That doesn't mean I sit down every time and feel I need to do that, but it means that I can do it and that I frequently have done. Uh, I, well, I was gonna say, I remember before he unfortunately passed, um, speaking with Larry Cohen about how he would write his movies and how he was always glad that he, he had the gift of storytelling and he was able to basically craft a movie. But if he could, he as did. he put it, smuggle in uh, his social interests, like that just made it all the more better. Yes, all, one of my favorite directors is John Sayles, and John Sayles did that in, in nearly all of his work, you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, he's been a big influence on me because his, his films uh, uh, and his fiction as well, even though, um, I, you know, we, we write about different things in many ways, but we don't always, and in another way, we all are interested in social issues. I think we're all interested in... Um, you know, how things affected us of that generation. I always think it's weird when you hear this boomer shit and I think, who do you think did civil rights? Who do you think did, you know, feminism? Who do you think, you know, was uh, involved in anti-war just because they've got people that age that they can, you know, put it into that basket. But that's like me taking all the, all the, all the generation Z or X or whatever they are and saying they're all alike. It's ridiculous, you know, because our generation is the one that changed uh, how you're sitting there right now with beards, guy? If you didn't do that, you damn sure wouldn't have a job, and you damn sure wouldn't go there with that cap on, you know? Because we we did our t-shirt. You know, of course we're. I mean, we're in a informal situation, but you just people didn't do that. And you know, you'd go, uh, you'd see people they were wearing suits to to very simple jobs. You know, they got a tie on and a suit. I mean, what the fuck? You know, and and we were also starting to wear things that were, you know, colorful, which they didn't do. They wore white shirts mostly. You know, Elvis, he'd come on with a pink shirt and people go, oh my God, and a pink Cadillac. What is, what is wrong with this guy? And these are the guys that changed us, you know, Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis in some ways, you know, and then you got the Beatles and, you know, you got so on and so on. The culture was changing from the fifties, the fifties, the sixties were just the fifties on fire. That's all it was. The sixties were the fifties on fire. And by about 64, 65, you felt the earth shift. And for a moment, we thought things were going to work. But we were juveniles trying to run 
a, a revolution, I guess you might call it. And so we still were juveniles. We were more interested in, can we put fuck on our shirt or should we deal with something important, you know? And then in 1968, you had the Manson murders, you had uh, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, all of this stuff, already had John Kennedy, and you just had this collapse of this optimism that had been there, which I write about in Savage Season, actually. See, Savage Season is secretly me, my book about the 60s and about yeah. the collapse of idealism, you know? And, uh, but I wanted to say, well, I like all these other entertaining gold medal books as well. So is there a way to, you know, put, put, uh, you know, the John D McDonald's and, and, uh, you know, James Kane and all these people in with, um, you know, the, the 1960s and the 19 early 1970s and the Vietnam war and so on. Yeah. I, I spent a lot of, uh, not to get too far off on like a tangent or anything, but I spent a lot of the... I just did, so you're welcome to. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But I spent a lot of the quarantine reading the uh, Travis McGee novels, John D. McDonald. Yeah. You just bring him up. And yeah. I didn't realize until I actually sat down with them, because they're such short books. You can rip through them, like three of them in like a week, because they're like 170 right. pages. But they're all such interesting encapsulations of like what that time period was like and how he was, yes. he had to essentially. And he, he was of the, he was of a different school in a way. He was of that old, the, you know, playboy culture, the playboy, yeah. playboy magazine culture. You know, he was always having sex with women as if that was going to make them wiser and straighten yeah. them out, which was always something I found kind of like, Ooh, that's yeah, it's not, a little icky. That's not good. this guy is interesting. And, and what I loved about McDonald is that he had ideas that even if I agreed or disagreed with him, he was he was brave enough to incorporate those into his stories. And I loved those stories. And I loved his standalones even more than his series. And and I I love those things. And and they really were they they're unusual in that they're not of their time, they're about their time. Right. And a lot of things you find are of their time. And there, you know, you pass over them. But other things like Raymond Chandler is still, he's about that time. He's not of his time. He transcends that. It doesn't matter if, if, if things change. It doesn't matter if now we have a Me Too generation and we have all these different things that changes. His is a true capsule in time. It's like a history lesson as well as a great story. And then there's others that wrote things in that time. And you just go, you just wince, you know, when you read them. Because they're, they're not really telling you anything about that time. And I, and I don't believe fiction has to be agree with me either. It doesn't have to be agreeable with everything no. I believe. It has, to be, it has to be fascinating and interesting. I mean, I'm not going to read a, uh, a, a Ku Klux Klan novel that's pro-Klan. I mean, I, that's not going to happen. But if I have a novel that's about the Klan, even if they're like people that are not particularly wonderful, but it's, that's not his point. That's, that's the characters in the story. I'm not offended by that. I'm not offended by language. I'm not offended by any of that. It has to have purpose. And the problem with, with social issues, as soon as you start putting limitations on what you can say, what you can discuss, it's not about social issues anymore. It's about political correctness going crazy. And I'm not an anti-political correct in many ways. I, I think some people say I'm, I'm not politically correct just so they can be an asshole. Yeah. But there are other people political correctness can get so out of hand it's like everybody's splicing everything you you say 
you know, everything. Oh, that's anti-feminist. That, that's racist. And, and you know what? Call somebody on it if it is. But a lot of times when you're t writing a novel and you're writing about a character that is a racist doesn't make you one. I mean, the Happen Leonard novels, I can't think of novels or the bottoms which are more anti-racist. <laughs> that's exactly what they are. And they're written for that reason, because racism is the greatest scar on my soul, because I grew up in East Texas, and I grew up in the 50s and 60s, when that was standard, when uh, a black person had to go to a water fountain that was separate from whites, who had to go upstairs to watch a movie, who could not go in a restaurant, could not go into a washeteria. I don't know if y'all have washeteria, but couldn't go into a washeteria. They couldn't go into any place like that. And, and I even remember when I was young, uh, uh, my mom would be walking along the street, and if a black man was coming, he would step off the sidewalk and take his hat off. Everybody wore hats then, men did, and look at the ground. I mean, come on, man. You know, yeah. and, I, and if you start forgetting that stuff, and you don't, and you feel like, I can't write about that because the past might be offensive. The past is supposed to be offensive if it was offensive. And that doesn't mean they're all the past was bad, but you've got you to point your finger at those things, or otherwise the, the Holocaust, the way black people and, well, gay people, women. I mean, I remember in, in the 50s and early 60s, men would talk about correcting their wives. You know what that meant? It meant hitting them. Yeah. And that was supposed to be okay. I remember women says, well, that's, you know, he, he has to correct me from time to time because it's in the Bible. And my mother was like, well, you know, he's got to sleep sometime. You know, <laughs> he's going to have to sleep sometime. I'm, and my dad wasn't like that. But, you know, he was an old, uh, in many ways, he was an ignorant man, but he wasn't a stupid man. He was racist, uh, but he was also strangely fair with everybody. You know, it, it's people try to make these things simple, like you're here or you're there. And most of us are kind of here and there on so many different things. And that's what fiction is supposed to do. It's supposed to not just have the, you know, the noble hero with the jutting chin that always does everything right. It's supposed to be about contradictions in, in humanity and in characters. And, you know, Happen Leonard, you can't think of two people that are more conflicted, have more contradictions. There's certainly baselines that they maintain, but those guys, you know, they're not the perfect by any means. And, and they make bad choices, but they're also there to get those things across to people and entertain them, sneak that entertainment in at the same time. Yeah, it's the whole depiction versus endorsement argument in terms exactly. of exactly yeah perfect i'll have to borrow that i like that <laughs> yeah uh, because that's exactly it you know i, I had a i had a, a a reader of mine a black reader uh had wrote me the other day and talked about how much they loved the books and that they understood the use of the language when i did do it and you know i'll just obviously everything i do i don't do it, but I've done it a lot because it's something I discuss a lot and something I deal with and something I hear even now because people look at me and think, oh, he must be a redneck, you know? And, uh, uh, but, you know, I hear these things and I go, oh my God, really? You know? And then I've had somebody, uh, and usually it, it tends to be somebody white and young and precious will write me and say, well, you know, this word means this. And I thought, you know, no shit. Is that what that means? No shit. Well, I did that, but did you read the book? Yeah. Did you read the content of the bottoms? Did you know what it was about? Are you just looking for things that offend you? Or are you looking for something that you should be socially offended about? And I'm trying to tell you, you should be socially offended about. Just because it happened in the 1930s, that, that's to give you a history lesson 
and to let you know history can and will repeat itself. And in fact, I hate to say it, but I don't think we learn a goddamn thing from history. I think we keep doing the same things over and over and over. And if we don't make some point of learning from history, you know, we're going to do these same horrible things to people because of the color of their skin or because of their sex or because of their sexuality. Uh, and so all of that is, is part of what I do. And I would say 80% of my work, you know, the other 20% is just monsters and, 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 uh, uh, you know, shootouts and things like that. But that 80% has got a lot of that stuff in it, but that's, what's important to me. That's why John D was important to me because he really did deal with social issues. I didn't, like I said, I didn't always agree with everything he did, but he, the environment was a big thing in, in the uh, yeah. Travis McGee book. And it's, it's been interesting watching, um, I guess to draw sort of a parallel, it's been interesting to watch the resurgence of uh, Joe Bob Briggs lately in terms of yeah. his writing and his hosting, because yeah. um, kind of like what you're talking about with people reading your writing is that, uh, the harshities of it can almost be misinterpreted that way. And it's the exactly. same way of how his persona has by some viewers. Been satire and irony. And you don't, you yeah. don't have people that was attuned to that. When I was growing up, I've had people say, we need to get rid of Huckleberry Finn. And I'm thinking, what, are you crazy? When I read Huckleberry Finn, it was one of those revelations for me when I thought, Oh, when Huck said, I can either turn Jim in because that's the Christian thing to do, or I can go to hell. He thought, well, I'm just going to go to hell because that's my friend. And I read that and I, I understood something different. And with the language was a common language I heard people say every day. And I, when I heard that, I didn't get from Twain that he was endorsing that by any means. You know, when I read To Kill a Mockingbird, people want to get rid of To Kill a Mockingbird because there are some negative words in it in, in a couple of places. And I thought that was also a turning point for me. And then people can say, but yes, that's not the black experience. But you know what? It's the white experience in trying to understand the black experience. And it's as important for us to know the, you know, how white society has failed and how some white people in society haven't. And those books are two that, I, you know, just off the top of my head that do it. But that don't really mean I don't read, you know, The Invisible Man and, and get other perspectives and, you know, Ralph Ellison and things like that. I, I, I do because you should have a well-rounded viewpoint. But the idea that somebody, I got their feelings hurt without understanding what the book was about. It's not like it's the Turner Diaries. It's not that awful. <laughs> yeah. You know, right? I mean, that's not, it's not, it's not trying to endorse that by any means. So I, I don't understand where people are coming from in those, in those manners, you know? Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Jacob. Well, no, it was just, it, it's also, it's also fascinating to me to watch people isolate those incidents and make them suddenly who that artist is to where exactly. they go through the history, you know, again, not to bring up Joe Bob Briggs, but to watch him kind of getting some hot uh, water over jokes that he's told and stuff and people call him anti-gay and anti-feminist and all these things. And then you sit there and you go, yeah, but he was the guy, he brought us Frank Henry. Yeah, Joe Bob Briggs is a character that yeah. is a satire of rednecks and things yeah. like that. The real guy, the real guy's name is John Bloom. Yeah, he's and he a can't be more erudite than, yeah. than him, you know. So it's it's a it's a ridiculous thing when it's so obvious what he's doing. I mean, do you think anybody acts that stupid on purpose if they're not stupid? <laughs> I mean, he's doing he's doing redneck 
in the in the way that I grew up. When I read him in the Dallas Morning News, or as he called it, the Dallas Boring News, yeah. I thought it instantly. Exactly what he was doing. And he was also looking at movies and saying, you know, some of these movies aren't very good, but there's some sort of soul in them. There's some sort of, uh, you know, real artistry on 15 cents. You know, if you, if you watch the brother, brother from another planet with John sales, God, what did he do that on? Like he must've had like, you know, $5 in a, in a free lunch or something, because, yeah. but it's great. It's great. And it's, it's, it's about being an outsider. And in some cases about being a black outsider, you know, and he did this on very, very little. And uh, so those kinds of movies can be, and also they sometimes just address those hormonal issues that young people are dealing with and trying to understand. And they address that, that moment when you step outside living in your parents' basement and you're starting to go, I can drive to the drive-in because we could then. I can go to the drive-in or I can go to the movies or I can get this video or whatever it is. And I can have this experience that really is raw. It doesn't mean that I myself have decided I'm going to go out and put the chainsaw to people. You know? Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite, uh, the first thing I ever read that you had written was the drive-in. Uh, and, yeah. and, um, that, that began as a, a nonfiction piece, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Can you talk about how that yeah. kind of transformed and like, how it kind of your experience yeah. over time uh, bled into that? I wrote stories for Twilight Zone magazine, um, and it was a relatively new magazine. Well, it was a new magazine in the early 80s. And uh, uh, T.E.D. Klein, who's, you know, Ted Klein, but he, he used little dots behind the, um, you know, the T, the E, and the D. He, he got in contact with me once, and he said, uh, I believe it was Ted. They had three different editors there when I was there. Maybe four. One didn't last long. And he said, we... Um, we need a, a nonfiction article. We've been doing these nonfiction articles. You got an idea? And I said, you know, I, I think I do. And so I think I pitched it to him or whatever. And he said, okay, go ahead and do it. So I wrote this piece uh, called Hell Through the Windshield, Hell Through a Windshield. And what it was about was seeing these things. And I, I, I also was addressing the times. And again, racism became part of it in that when I went to see Night of the Living Dead, there were, um, you know, people yelling out at the black main character because he was one of the first times you saw a, a black character who was the hero. And there were people yelling awful things at the screen, you know? And then we, I, I was also the same there and I saw two guys get in a fight in front of my car. One of them had a two before and the other one had a bag of popcorn. Guess who won? The popcorn. popcorn. <laughs> the, yeah, popcorn, no. The, the two before. And they popcorn <laughs> And it was it was just crazy, and uh, but all of those experiences, you know, were were part of that. But anyway, I wrote this article, and then an editor at uh, Doubleday, uh, who had bought the Magic Wagon for me, uh, said, "Hey, I read that article. Do you think there's a novel in it?" And I thought, "Well, I need some money, so there's a novel in it." Um, <laughs> and, uh, I said, "Look, I'm an artist, but I'm also a professional writer." And, and, and what, just because I'm getting paid for it don't mean I put a sack over its head and fuck it for old glory. You know, I've got, I've got things that I plan to do and do it right and do as well as I can. And so I hated that book when I wrote it. I hated every minute of it. I wrote it two and a half months and I thought it was so dark and so sad and so, but it was satirical and it was ironic and it was all of those things. But to me, I was also writing about really dark issues you know, beneath it all. 
And uh, when it, I got the book back to read in galley form, I read it and I said, hey, I think I did something here. I maybe I think I was wrong. I think I did something here. And the book, you know, when it first came out, everybody loved, oh, it's comic, it's gross and all that. And I thought, well, yeah, but you kind of missed what I was after. You know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm glad you like it. But then years later, the book got richer for people because they began to see what it was really doing. And there was, there were many things. And, and uh, so that started out as an article out of true experiences of me going to the drive-in and then it became a novel and then it became two other uh, extensions, you know, uh, uh, it became a triple feature. <laughs> what, uh, what movie do you think was possibly beyond Night of the Living Dead was possibly one of the most radical things that you saw at the drive-in while going there? Well, we're, we're taking time into perspective. Sure. You know, in other words, it would be radical. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's never yeah. been anything like it. And you know, people always say, what's your favorite horror movie? And I, it's The Haunting, the 1960s version. Well, that's incredible. So, you know, I, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. So to me, I don't have to have blood and gore, but I don't have to not have it either. And uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Night of the Living Dead both, there's never been anything like that. I mean, people now can't understand that, I don't think. But you, we saw them, we thought, what the hell? You can do that, you know? And uh, I remember being shocked by those those two films in a very good way. But uh, I would say those two when I when I was a kid going to the drive-in. And there were some old sleazy horror films that were no good. I don't even remember what they were, but they would have moments in them when you're going, holy, whoa, really? You know? Yeah. Texas Chainsaw still has teeth, though. I think Texas Chainsaw still has that, those teeth today. I, I don't think yeah. any of the sequels are nearly as good. You no. know, there's a... And, and my and my brother David Scow wrote one of them. He wrote Leatherface, but uh, I I I love I love that original film so much because it was a comedy too. And I was always sure. drawn to humor. You know, Nine the Living Dead is probably not so much comedy, uh, but uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre certainly is. Like when Leatherface runs too fast and he runs past where he's supposed to go, and he <laughs> got his chainsaw, and all these little touches were comic, and they were horrible because horror at it, for me, at its best, is a flip side of a coin. One side's humor, one side's horror. I knew Bob uh, Block a little bit, Robert Block, who wrote Psycho and who who wrote so many great horror stories. And he he told me that he said they're the they're the flip side of the same coin. Yeah, you know, and well, it is because and sometimes if you go to a horror movie, if you're in a, a certain mood, it's just funny. And then you go to it another time, and you're in a certain mood, it's the most terrifying thing you ever saw. But most of the time, it's that kind of combination of pulling you in different directions. And to me, if it's got humor in it, it and if it's not just a comedy, but just got humor in it, which is different, that's scarier to me than if it's just solid straight out because I'm laughing at something that's horrible and I shouldn't be, or I'm feeling amused by it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's got that conflicting emotion that you can't really put your finger on and explain. Something I've tried to do in fiction a lot, and it's, it's hard to do. It's, it's interesting you bring up uh, Robert Block, too, because, like, you know, he's obviously the author uh, of, you know, that became the, the, the source material for what a lot of people consider one of the scariest movies of all time. But he also wrote that right. sequel to Psycho where Norman Bates goes out to Hollywood and watches his own story basically get adapted. And I always wanted to yeah. see that movie too, because it's well, doing that, the thing that, that you're talking about. 
Yeah. You know, that would have been fun. Well, you know, the psycho, the book is very much the same story. I mean, it's not right. a big change. I remember in the book, he's a big heavy man. And, yeah. and, and of course, you know, it's not in the, in the film, but it's really pretty much the same story and it's funny and scary. And, you know, people talk about Hitchcock thinking it was a comedy. Well, so did Bob. He thought it was a comedy too. He wrote it in a, you know, comedy in that broader sense of the word and that it's horrible and a comedy at the same time. Robert Bloch's one of my, uh, you know, early heroes, especially in, in horror, uh, because he did have that sense of humor. And, and, and in his time, his stuff was some of the darkest stuff you could read, you know. Everybody looks back and thinks, oh, well, that, that stuff's not as powerful as this. But without that, you don't have this. Oh, uh, sure. I, I like all of it. I like The Haunting's one of my favorite uh, films, and The Haunting of Hill House is one of my favorite novels, and it's nowhere near. It's miles away from Texas Chainsaw Master. Did you watch the Flanagan adaptation that uh, was on Netflix for The Haunting of Hill House? No. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I did. I liked the first four episodes or five. I think by the time I got to the um, – um, I guess the funeral, you know, when they were uh, there, I, I, I kind of lost it after that. And I thought the ending, they, everybody's trying to crank out some kind of different ending. And I think they should have stuck a little more with the book and made some of the changes that they made early on. I, I thought that the bent neck woman and the guy that flew, I thought that was some scary crap. Yeah. But after it went on a little bit, I didn't, I didn't, it kind of lost its juice for me. I wanted to like it more than I did, but I didn't hate it. Sure. Uh, I love to uh, also um, with with your writing. I watched an interview with you uh, talking about Cold in July um, and talking about not using an outline. We've talked a lot about kind of you know how a lot of your life experiences have kind of imbued your work. But when you're attacking a new story, like do you do you start kind of character first? Do you have like, does it sometimes be different? Like you have like a theme. Like when you're attacking it, how does that usually happen? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's um, I put my fingers on the keys. Yeah, and uh, and then the story starts coming out. Well, usually what happens is I have to find the voice. That's the most important thing to me. If I can find the voice of the character or of the story, then I, I'm easy. It's easier for me to find the characters. And then once I find the characters, they tell me the story, which means my subconscious is actually doing all the work. My subconscious is plotting, but I'm not aware of it. Yeah. So it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's not that I don't plot. It's just I don't consciously plot. I'm a big believer in stream of consciousness and, and in uh, this, you know, the, that, that, that sort of back mind, so to speak, the primitive brain. And then you write it. And as you do, you can kind of sort it out if it gets a little too off, you know, but I write one draft generally, but I, I say that, but generally I polish every day. So there's no telling how many times I've redrafted three to five pages, which is my usual amount. Some days I might get 10 or 15, 20 pages even, but it's nearly always in three hours, no matter what, if I get, if I get three pages, it may be three hours. If I get 20, it's probably three hours. Cause sometimes I sit down, it's just bam, it just goes, you know? And once, when I get into that groove, uh, I'm not really aware of what time yeah. it is or how, but it nearly always is three hours. And that's so weird. I love that. I love to like, I think it, for what I, a lot of writing a lot of your work is an unpredictability often, you know, I think of all the left turns that cold in July takes. 
Like I showed the, yeah. the film to my mother and she thought it was all about, about Sam, uh, Sam Shepard's character just hunting him the whole time. I said, oh, just wait, you know, and it takes left <laughs> turn, left turn, left turn. Um, right, right. And it keeps well, it exciting, know, I like think, the reader. Because sometimes people just can't go with you on it. And, 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 it, and really the book is all logical as to why these things happen. And there's a reason, there's a, there's a relationship that's unspoken to some extent between Richard, the main character, and, uh, you know, the guy that became Sam Shepard's character in, in the film, who's very different. My yeah. character's chatty. He's talking. He's chatty. He's very different, you know. But, um, and then Jim Bob, who, uh, you know, I think, I think um, Don Johnson nailed Jim Bob like, like he is in the books pretty much. But, uh, you know, there's some things that I felt like I could make those corners, turn those corners more easily in prose, and I could give more background. Enough. But the movie did a really, really good job. And I, I really like that movie. I'm, I'm a big fan, you know, and Bubba Hotep and, and uh, all the things of mine have been done, like the TV series and, and uh, the Batman stuff. I've been really happy with there are a couple of minor things that I'm like, nah, they're you know, so, so, but the, the rest of it, I've, I've been very lucky with. And I thought that they were able to capture the attitude of the book really, really well. I, and I thought Michael C. Hall was the whole show to me. I mean, I know how great Don Johnson's Sam Shepard were, but they didn't have to be in every scene. And they didn't <laughs> have to transform who they were over the course of that film. I mean, you, you get to come in and be the cool guy, and then you get to go take a nap. And then uh, Mike's got it. He's in every scene. Don Johnson saying it's howdy duty time is still one of my favorite moments from <laughs> last That's year. in the book. Yeah, I know. That's when he says it. I'm like, all right, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was reading in prep for this uh, chat an old interview that you had done with Robert R. McCammon, um, where mm -hmm. he asked you what it's around 1989. So obviously we're about 30 years removed, 31 years. Uh, but he asked you what your favorite work was at the time. And you cited Night They Missed the Horror Show. And I wondered if that yeah. still held true to you or if in 30 years, maybe you think you've topped it. I think I've written just as well or better, but I don't know that I've written any more powerful. Okay. You know, I, I, in some ways, it's still my favorite. Uh, I think that there are things like, uh, oh, Mr. Weed Eater or uh, uh, The Projectionist, which is a totally different kind of story. But I, I think those are all good stories, too, and I think they're equal or as good. The Pit, a tight little stitches in a dead man's back on the far side of the Cadillac Desert, Bubba Hotep. Um, you know, those are all events concerning a nude fold-out found in a Harlequin romance that's very different, or the big blow with the novella version. Of the, in fact, the, uh, the novella version of The Bottles was called Mad Dog Summer. Uh, you know, so I, I don't know that I, you know, I have ones that I think are better if I was putting together uh, an essential, which I am, by the way, but if I was putting a set together an essential Lansdale, there are some that would be in it and some that would not. But even some that would not, I like a lot of those. And then I have a few that were like, you know, when I was first starting out, it wasn't that good. And then there's some that I was like, like building a chair. You know, I think Harlan Ellison and I were talking about that once. It's that you should be able to build a piece of art, like an architect, but you should also be able to build a chair meaning something that's functional, that's good, and you should be a professional every day of the week. 
You know, there's a level you don't fall below. And sometimes sure. you think you're writing at this level and you find that you're writing at the level where you don't fall below. And then other times you think you're writing at just this level and you get through with it. Tight Little Stitches, I thought was a horrible story. And I was writing and I thought, man, this ain't working. But it's all I got, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with it. Bubba Hotep, same thing, you know. And uh, I was actually fixing to withdraw Bubba Hotep. We were doing it by mail then. And I thought about it and uh, I thought, man, I think I missed the boat. I'm going to write them. And I got an acceptance letter saying it was their favorite in the book. And then immediately <laughs> I realized, yeah, they're right. It's really good. <laughs> it's, I'm curious about that, though, because it's, it's really difficult when you're creating anything to be self-critical, let's say. And I just wonder, how do you gauge the level? How do you know that you fell below the level? Or is it just a gut? Um, I, know, I know that having done it now for 47 years, having been published for 47 years and been doing it all my life since I was four, you know, trying to write comic books and whatever, that I have learned that there's a level I don't fall below. Now, if I get to be 80 and 90 and forget, you know, what kind of soup I'm eating, I may, I may have to quit because I may not have that level anymore. But there's a level that generally I don't fall below. There's a professional level that you're going to be able to read it and go, that's a professional story. It may not yeah. be my favorite. I may not even like it, but it's not like, uh, you know, he, he, he put, uh, you know, a newspaper in the, in, in the birdcage and put ink on the canary's feet and said, scratch me a story. I mean, I actually worked on it. And I never write anything with the idea that I'm writing a pile of horse shit. You know, I never do that. I always think I'm writing the best I can. But, and sometimes like when you're working like with Batman, the animated series, you have certain limitations because you have, and that doesn't mean it's good or bad. I'm just talking about you have, you're working within the limitations of the character. You know, the character suddenly shouldn't be doing things that that character doesn't do. And uh, unless you're, you know, you have some thematic idea about that and you have to understand you, you have a time limit when you're writing uh, for, you know, animation or film or comic books, you have a page limit. So that within itself is a different construct and it changes the way you have to look at that story than if you're writing prose. You know, because sure. prose, they don't really tell me how long a novel's got to be. I mean, if it's too short, then it's, a, it's not a novel. But other than that, it can be longer. It can be, you know, it can be, well, some of my novels are actually are 30,000 words. They're like novellas, like The Magic Wagon and The Drive-In. Drive-In 2, I think. Um, Cold in July is not that long. No. Uh, it's probably a little longer than that, but it's, it's probably more like 50,000 or something like that. But, you know, most of the stuff I do is, is you know, short, but... Every once in a while, there'll be a Paradise Sky or my new one, Moon Lake, which are really long. But I never sat down and think, now I'm going to write the big one. Um, I knew I knew Paradise Sky would be big because I just knew I had so much ground I wanted to cover. Mm. It's my favorite. That's my favorite of all my books. Okay. If you ask me what's my favorite book, that's it. That's awesome. It's. Uh, I'm wondering. We also have been. Uh, for our, our podcast is called Secret Handshake and uh, we're, talk, we're talking about film and the, the idea behind that too is uh, we, it's a film that you make friends through, right? It's like, oh, I think you should see this or yeah. meeting someone who likes a rare film. Do you have a secret yeah. handshake film that you've made friends through? Like you've been at a party and, and dropped a random horror film or? Oh, wow. That's a toughie. That's a toughie. I like so many things and, and, you know, 
horror is not my main love in some ways. It every time I, I write in it, I love it. And and horror is very important to me and I love it, but it's not my only thing. You know, I, yeah. I think for me, it's kind of like Westerns and uh, I like, um, but I don't like one better than the other. I just have a, a, a sort of warm feeling for all kinds of Westerns. I'd say Butch Casting the Sundance Kid uh, is, but it's not like a, a rarity. It's, it's very, it was always an, a, an acclaimed film, but that's probably, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is my favorite film. Casablanca is my favorite, second favorite film. And uh, Butch Casting is my third favorite film. Then after that, you're getting into Little Big Man and you're getting oh, into man. The Shootist. And, uh, and so, you know, my interest, so when you, you know, it's not like I don't love horror. It's just that by the time you get to it, it's a little farther down. And my horror is informed by my love of, of these other things. Otherwise, uh, you know, I, I actually don't read a whole lot of horror. I do read it, but because it's all just alike to me or, or they get into a, a phase and we did it too. You know, we're not, we weren't immune, but we created certain things that weren't being done in the eighties that weren't being done that way. And then somebody else comes along and they build on what we did and they're, they're doing something else. And sometimes I, I, I do look and say, well, I not only have I done this before, I've done this two or three times before, but am I doing it well, you know? And, uh, but I, I've, you know, I've written novels. If you look across the board at my, I think I've got 50 novels. If you count all the novellas and short stories that come up wordage, it'd be about a hundred novels if you were doing all that. But I've written everything that interests me. If you take Fender Lizards, that's that's a novel about a girl growing up in East Texas, a poor girl growing up in a, a, a trailer park. That's what it's about. That's it. And I think it's one of my best books. Uh, Jane Goes North is like a high comedy that's dark. And it's just about a woman that, that is going to, um, I don't know if you know about it, but it's about a woman that's going to a wedding that her sister invited her to because her sister doesn't think she'll come. And she's, and she's, Wanting to, well, I'll show them I'm going to go, but boy, do things go wrong, you know? <laughs> and so to me, I don't really stop and think of it that way. You might bring up a film and I'd go, oh yeah. What about that film where they're tossing the guy's uh, um, penis and testicles? What, what is that one? And they're playing football with it. Uh, Free trash. Um, you know, that's it. That's <laughs> one I like. <laughs> I'm, fr I'm friends with the lead character from that movie. I know he was a friend of mine, Mike. I'm friends with yeah. the lead actor in that movie, Mike. It's like a random relationship. I've always thought that. For some reason, I couldn't think of the title then. That's the that uh, problem with growing older. You know, titles don't jump to you quite as quickly sometimes. But, um, yeah, that one, Street Trash, I, I remember when, at least back in the 80s, you know, I could bring that one up. And if somebody went, yeah, that's good. I knew I had my people with me, you know. I knew I was in. And not because it's a wonderful, wonderful film but it's because it's daring. And, and, and it's like, um, you know, you have, you have certain films that during that era that really, and you look at some of them now, they don't hold up, but in that era, nobody was doing that because there was, uh, you know, these videos and people were pumping them out. Well, now you can see anything everywhere, all kinds of things, you know, uh, the beast within was one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, I, I love I once, it. I once went to do a, for Don Coscarelli, I went to do a, they were doing a DVD, which I think was about him. I don't remember if it was actually a particular movie, maybe Phantasm, but a bunch of us were talking about Don. And so they brought me out there to do that. Well, the guy picked me up and was driving me over to the place. And I kept looking at this guy. And uh, for some reason, something was said and I brought up the, 
you know, the be- the beast within. And he said, yeah, I was a star of that. And he was. <laughs> he was the studio, and I knew I recognized him. And I know that's why that was on my mind. He was older, you know, he wasn't a young kid anymore, but I thought, yeah, I love that movie. You know, I really, really, really do. Basket Case, another one, you know, my God, you don't, you don't get much more vulgar and crazy than that. And I bet I watched that thing 20 times. Yeah, it's terrific. I think Beast Within has my favorite transformation in movie history. Just like the the monster breaking through his skin, everything yeah. just like falling. It reminds off. me a little bit of the Fly. You know, yeah. the, the, later they did the Fly. They have, they have kind of yeah. I I, I like that. And you know, uh, and one of my friends uh, uh, when I was starting out, uh, Greg Nicotero, he was starting out, and he you know he went on to do The Walking Dead and all these other things. And David Scow, who wrote, uh, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Crow, uh, they were starting out. We were all starting out to get together, and we were going, wow, what can we do? We're like kids in candy stores. I'm still that way. I mean, I wake up every morning, when my feet hit the floor, I'm an excited son of a bitch. I'm ready to go to work, you know? And I, I go in, and I get my three hours, and, and I can't wait. I cannot wait. You know, it's not that I don't have some days when it's hard, but most of the time it's not hard because I've done, I worked in the rose fields. I did all that stuff. So to me, it's like people pay me for this. This is great. (laughs) Well, Joe, I got to thank you uh, for taking the time to speak with us, man. It was, it's just been nothing but a treat. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been so fun. Thank you for having me. And, uh, Good luck with everything. Although you don't really need luck at this point. You're just, it's always like, it's, a big it. <laughs> it's, the, it's the ending salutation of like, good luck. And it's like, I think he's fine. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you know, I, I do believe that there's sometimes being in the right place at the right time sure makes a difference, but I really believe I don't, I don't base my career on waiting for the, for luck for that moment. And you're luckier when you produce stuff that people suddenly won't. You know, if you, if somebody says, well, I'm going to make a film out of Bubba Hotep, though, you know, it isn't a great financial feat and I didn't make a ton of money off of it. It was a career changer in many ways, but it wouldn't have happened had I not written the story, you know? So it, so your luck increases, you know, the more you have something to be lucky about. Like that old thing about the golfer that keeps hitting the hole in one, the guy says, man, you sure are lucky. He said, yeah, the more I practice, luckier I get. <laughs> I think that's a perfect note to end on. But again, perfect. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.